this is my minute-long inspiring conclusion. Uh, I'll address this partly to the, uh, the young high school students who are here, and then more generally to the uh, deliberative Minnesotans in the audience, both physical and virtual. For the, the high school students who are here, I think despite everything I've said, I hope many of you will consider careers either in media or politics, because both of those fields need all the talent they can get, and each of them have real, real excitement and reward, and they are two areas where, despite the constraints, if you do your best, you can feel that you can make some kind of difference, which is not always the case in, in every, every job. And so we need idealistic people coming in thinking, I can make it different, despite what this old guy is saying, that it can be better. And so it's by young people's efforts that the media have been changed over time and politics as well. So I hope that you will take it as your personal responsibility to fix the things I'm complaining about and say, yes, we heard these discouraging things back in 2004, but look how well things have actually turned out. For the audience in Minnesota, I hope that you will draw on your long and well-established tradition of being different from the pattern I have described, of being an audience of people, an electorate, a community that takes its public issues seriously and that you can show us, you know, in, in an example, at least in this part of the country, that you will support the kind of media that do try to find middle ground, that you will give uh, encouragement to, to publications and broadcasts that do that and, and uh, you will chastise those who, who do not. And you'll recognize there is a shared challenge which reaches beyond the great decision of the ne uh, next 12 days about how we will provide ourselves with the fair information we need to make our choices as a free people. Thank you. Thank you, James Fallows. You're listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on the Nicolette Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Krista Tippett, the moderator of today's forum. Our guest is James Fallows, who's just spoken to us about journalism and democracy at this moment in our country's life. While ushers collect questions from our audience at Westminster, we'd like to remind our Minnesota Public Radio listeners that these forums are free and open to the public. For information about upcoming forums, you can go online to www.ewestminster.org. We also invite you to visit the Minneapolis Public Library's website at www.mplib.org, where you can link to a recommended reading list on today's topic. The Town Hall Forum would like to extend its gratitude to sponsors, the General Mills, Baker and Nash Foundations, the Rake Magazine, and Skyway News, we also thank the many generous individuals who support the forum's mission of promoting public discussion of the leading ethical questions of our time. James Fallows, if you will return to the pulpit, we will begin with questions from the audience. I'd like to start with a question. When we met this morning earlier, you mentioned to me that you just had a, an unsatisfying exchange on a Fox News program. Uh, and so I'd like to I sort of ask you to bring this home a bit. I mean, given that the formats right now are what they are, uh, and the discussions take place with a certain tone and at a, a certain level, I wonder, do you feel that you are compromised by participating in them, or and or are you able to inject a different kind of journalistic ethic and tone? This is a genuine dilemma, and let, let me be specific about what we were discussing a, a while ago. Um, last night I got a call from the Atlantic's you know, media office, would I be on a Fox News show this morning? I said, well, it's going to be in, in Minneapolis, it would be difficult. And so, but they said they wanted to talk about presidential rhetoric, and that's something I actually have 
written about a, f a fair amount recently. I did a long story on presidential debates in the backgrounds of, of, of Bush and Kerry. And my rule of thumb is there's something I actually know about. If I've reported about something as opposed to just being a guy at a bar, you know, saying, well, I think, you know, Kerry's no good or I think Bush is no good. If something I actually know about, then, then it's fine, you know, going on TV to talk about it. I got to the studio this morning, uh, not far from here, and I listened to about the preceding 15 minutes on the Fox News Channel. First, it was uh, Senator Kerry's campaign being critiqued by Orrin Hatch. And Orrin Hatch was talking about all the ways in which Senator Kerry didn't understand national security. And there was something else. And the question to me was, the premise was, uh, first question, hadn't Teresa Hines Kerry made a serious, with Teresa Hines Kerry's comment that she didn't think Laura Bush had ever held a uh, real job, hadn't personal attacks reached a new low? I said, well, you're talking about um, the wife of John Swiftboat Kerry. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, that you can really make the case that this is a, a new low, considering that she apologized immediately. She obviously forgot about this, just as the vice president forgot that he ever met Senator Kerry, and just, uh, just Senator Edwards, and just as uh, the president forgot he'd ever said, you know, I'm not really that concerned about, um, about Osama bin Laden. And it went on in that vein for some while, sort of leading to the conclusion of, isn't Bill Clinton going to hurt uh, John Kerry if he starts campaigning for him? I said, well, I didn't really think so, since, you know, he was a real Democratic uh, magnet, despite the people who were against him. I said, well, the question was then, uh, well, Al Gore didn't carry his own home state of Tennessee. I said, yeah, well, that's Al Gore, and we're talking about Bill Clinton. So I then called the editor of my magazine and said, is this worth ever doing again? You know, is, is this uh, so embattled that it just is not, not worth it? And um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, for myself, I try not to go on shows unless I know something about it, and uh, I will think very carefully, as probably the Fox people will too, before the next such invite. <laughs> okay. How are infotainment programs and resources such as The Daily Show and Jon Stewart influencing democracy in America today? I have a slightly more uplifting answer to this question now than I might have a year or two ago, which is that I think even the infotainment programs, I'd say probably especially Jon Stewart's show, which I, I, I know like the conventional wisdom is this really good, and I also agree with that. I think it's, it's, it's very, very acute. It's not entirely uh, nihilistic. It's nihilistic about the process of politics and about the idiocies, especially of the press. And that's why that famous exchange between uh, Jon Stewart and the Crossfire host is worth finding on the internet if you didn't see it in real time. That really was riveting TV because it's one of the rare times you could see genuine acrimony, you know, not kind of uh, pro wrestling, but genuine difference of, of opinion where, where Stewart was saying, look, we are a comedy show and you, you people are supposed to purporting to talk about politics. I think that, that in pr much of previous politics, there's been a sense in these infotainment shows that it's all just ridiculous process, the politicians are all crooks, none of it matters. I sense in the last six or eight months, even in infotainment, a sense that maybe there are things at stake. The fact of a war does concentrate people's minds. So uh, on the, I think on the whole, journalism has been debauched by a lot of these, uh, these yelling head shows, but in the last couple of months, they are doing somewhat better than, than before, I'd say. Would you comment on the Sinclair broadcasting case, given market considerations and partisan media? I think the Sinclair case is actually the wave of the future, which is that I, was, I just mentioned a sentence or two about something I'll say a few sentences more about. I do think the course for the United States is towards an European-style partisan media, and we're just on, the, on that course. Uh, I think it's the, the background here is if you think of, I think the Sinclair Group 
is different from, from Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch, I believe, to be mainly a businessman rather than a conservative. You know, he supports Tony Blair in England because Blair has been good for his business. He supports Republicans here because they've been good for him. So I think that he's not mainly an ideologue. I believe the Sinclair people to be mainly ideologues, and the backlash against their current broadcast has forced them to back down. But I think 10 years from now, this will be the norm. There'll be certain of the networks or cable outlets which are basically liberal, certain that are basically uh, conservative, and that is the reality that until our high school students save us from it is what we'll have to adjust to. <laughs> Please give us some examples of high-end journalism. Well, I, I could modestly start with my own Atlantic Monthly magazine, which I... Uh, so. <laughs> Which, no, I, I think, uh, I'll give you a couple, I mean, I think the Atlantic Monthly is at this moment the best magazine in, in America, and, and I think, uh, I, there, I wouldn't say it every time in its history, but I think now it's very strong, but there are many others. The New Yorker is very strong. There's a website called Arts and Letters Daily, which is published out of New Zealand by a professor at Christchurch, New Zealand. You log onto that thing, and there are the 50 most interesting magazine articles from the whole world, you know, sort of digested and linked there. Uh, there, there are, you know, blogs are good and bad, but the New York Review of Books is extremely good. There are a lot of uh, cable uh, TV shows, which are not yelling head shows, but actual produced shows. Let me take a, why do you think yelling head shows, talking head shows, are so popular for cable? The reason is they are the cheapest form of programming you can put on. People typically are not paid anything. There's, you know, minimal studio costs, so that's why it's the cheapest way to fill the time. Okay. Um. How, I've got so many good questions here. What do you believe the future of blogging and the internet hold for journalism and democracy in America? Did these add something into that picture? I mean, is this a new model aside from just the European model? Uh, they certainly are part of the new model. And I think the new model, like, again, if you keep in mind the idea of other things provided by the market in America, then you have the idea of how information will be provided, where the main thing about them is their huge variegated nature. You know, there's all sorts of ways to get medical care in America, there's all sorts of ways to live in a house, all kinds of transportation, and there will be all kinds of information. And I think the hierarchy of the future will include you know, a number of sort of high-end, serious print publications and books which are able to reach a significant English language market around the world. You're going to have still in kind of uh, wasted away form the broadcast networks. When the three current network anchors pass, there's no kind of equivalent successor for them, and network news will not recover its authority. There'll be cable news shows with their niche audiences, and there will be blogs. And the blogs are part of this world in that they are, they have enormous niche influence. You know, none of them has, uh, it's worth thinking of the scale we're talking about here. A broadcast network needs to get 40 or 50 million people to feel this had a good audience for a show. A uh, cable network like Fox News is happy if it gets under a million for, for, for a program. Uh, a publication like mine has half a million subscribers. A blog is happy if it gets a certain number of thousands of hits per day. So they'll be part of this variegated universe in which there'll be just fewer sources of main authority. And so the problem for democracy is there's not going to be any equivalent to the old Walter Cronkite broadcast, the old Life magazine, the general information we all share. Okay. How well have American political thinkers, uh, this this listener says, politicians and scholars, people like that, articulated foreign policy options available to the United States after September 11th? That's, that's a hard, hard question. And it returns me to one other, one thing I should have mentioned in the high-end journalism. There was, I thought, an extremely well put together story in last week's New York Times Magazine by Ron Suskind about sort of the decision-making process of the Bush administration, which rang true to me from everything I've, I've been reporting uh, to. Um, I think that there has been a 
two kinds of failure of engagement about foreign policy options. One was at, at, at the intellectual level, where in the time when it could have made a real difference, in say the three or four months after September 11th, there probably was not enough serious engagement by you know, the scholars and, and serious politicians about what the real choices were for America. There was some, but it was not really connected. A reason for that, I think, was the fact that one of the attacks was in New York. The worst attack was in New York, obviously, and there was a kind of trauma in New York that, that had New York be more in the fray and less in the reflective mode than it might otherwise be. Uh, so there was that failure initially to come up with options. I'd say by the middle of 2002, a lot of options were on the table, and that led us to the second failure. My, my judgment based on reporting is that the current administration didn't ever really take seriously anything other than dealing with Iraq. And so if there's not a point of political engagement, if the opposition party decides in the fall of 2002 they can't really afford to challenge this in a frontal way, you have a kind of political market failure. So I think we had an intellectual failure of a sort and then a political, political decision that seemed to drive out these other options, which one way or another the next administration will deal with. Uh, I think that your reference to the Ron Susskind article is a good segue to this next question because that article has been very criticized by conservative commentators. And, and the, this listener asked, do you believe the stereotype of the liberal media is a reality? Uh, yes and no. It's true that most members of the national media, people who work for TV networks, people who work for big newspapers, people who work for the news magazines, most of them are Democrats, you know, capital D Democratic Party. Most of them voted for Bill Clinton, most of them will vote for John Kerry. Um, it is true also that on matters of, on culture war type matters, they are left rather than right. They are less religious than the American public, they are more liberal on matters of, you know, gay marriage, gay rights, abortion, et cetera, than is the mainstream of the American public. So that is the true part of it. The false part of it is that there is, when it comes to actual political engagement, I think the, the, the liberals in the national media feel a kind of self-consciousness about expressing their political bias that at the moment the conservatives don't. You know, there is no, many conservatives think that CNN is the liberal network and Fox is a conservative network and there's no comparison between them and their, and their partisan bias in my view. The CNN has, may have some liberal bias but it's, it's tiny compared to Fox's conservative bias. So it is true that the national media are a kind of liberal elite but the products of the national media are, are not. And just one other point, I, I, I would argue, and I won't do it here because it would take so long, that there's been sort of more willful distortion of facts on the Republican side than the Democratic side of the, the, the recent campaign. But it's difficult for the liberal media to point that out because they feel like they're being biased if they say that, as the recent uh, fray over Mark Halpern of ADVC has indicated. Do you think that the term balance in fact, that the drive to be balanced uh, has, in fact, narrows the discussion sometimes. Uh, yes, and the stereotype here would be uh, something on like, like the NewsHour on PBS, you know, the, the joke is, you'd say, and now a few words from Heinrich Himmler, you know, where, where there's sort of two sides to any question, and I think there can be things as, as you know, too even-handed uh, a, a, an approach, and again, we see this when it comes to campaign distortion, where you say, well, one side says this and one side says the other. Um, so I think there is a constraint that comes from balance. I think that, that even though the term fair has become somewhat debauched, I think that is a term that journalists can use. They can try to be fair. I mean, everybody, each one of us has his or her own 
experiences, biases, outlooks, areas of strength and weakness, but you can try to be fair. And, and that, that I think is the, and I think that doesn't narrow things, but balance can narrow okay, things. So fairness might inject more nuance into the, what is coming out than, than just a, uh, yes, a holding a, to balance. A kind of robotic balance uh -huh. doesn't help, but a ongoing struggle to be fair can be useful. Your article in the Atlantic Monthly Bushes last year was a great work of investigative journalism. Like the recent Knight Ritter articles on the war, it relied on insiders who are speaking without attribution. Do you perceive a trend in government and the military in leaking to the press some hard truths about the war and the Bush administration? Um, first, it is the case that, you know, down through time, there's been this phenom phenomenon of, of leaking and there's this a, a kind of corrupt symbiosis between the press and government on this front. Um, so that, that is a, an age-old phenomenon. Um, it's, I've done three large articles in The Atlantic about Iraq, with, and only in the third did I use any significant number of unnamed sources. And the reason is the perception inside the military in particular is that the cost of dissent had gone up. In the first two articles I did, one called The 51st State, which was published before the war, saying here's what's likely to happen if we win, and then one called Blind into Baghdad, published early this year about why planning didn't work out. Those were, I think I had almost no unnamed sources in those. This recent one, the people I spoke with who are on active duty, either in the military or the intelligence agencies, feel on the examples of Richard Clark and Eric Shinseki and Joseph Wilson and General Zinni and a number of others that they will be personally attacked if they, uh, in their livelihood, among other things, if they go on the record. And so I think this is a, it was with great reluctance that I used a number of these quotes um, anonymously. And the reason I did it was the people I was, was quote, quoting anonymously, who were like a third of the people I quoted in, in there, were representative of, representative of what I was hearing, and not one random person who was willing to kind of uh, just, just uh, talk bad without using his name. So it, it is a problem of this time of public governments and also of uh, the media. Is that something that journalists like you are discussing with your colleagues or in your publications? Uh, yes. There is a man named Jack Schaefer at Slate. He's a friend of mine. He has a sort of a, a, an unnamed source um, watch. There, there was a, a, an episode that, um, that Vice President Mondale might re recall when the New York Times almost uh, in, during the late 70s was trying to rebel against this. And it said there was a news story saying a senior administration official was saying X, Y, and Z, usually a normal blind quote. And then above it was a photograph of Secretary of State Cyrus Vance with a slug, uh, the, uh, the caption, a senior administration official. <laughs> so, so that was their way of, uh, they did that once. They didn't <laughs> try to do that again. Yes, this is a, an ongoing issue. Um, we all feel bad or should feel bad when using anonymous sources. And this is the one article, this last one, that I, I felt that I had to. Deregulation of the media has caused concentration of ownership and a decline in the quality of news and entertainment programming, which was a point that you made. Do you believe we can revisit the possibility of re-regulating the media? I think uh, this would be, when I said that I thought these were unchangeable trends, unless reversed by the, the uh, young Americans re re uh, represented here, is either that or a fundamental sort of shift in regulatory outlook to a degree that I don't, that only a very few Democrats even are, are talking about now. So it would require somebody willing to argue at length that the media business should be considered separate from other businesses. And that is so much against the trend of the world and the country in the last 25 years that I don't foresee it happening. Okay. Someone asks, what is the truth? When politicians <clears throat> directly contradict each other, how do you know what to believe 
Why doesn't the media hold candidates to lies? What was the last part? <clears throat> Sorry. Why doesn't the media hold candidates to lies or untruths? Uh, standing here at a pulpit in a church, I feel I should give some elevated response <laughs> here. Uh, I, and indeed, many people who have resented my criticisms of the media would like a picture of me standing at a pulpit now, <laughs> uh, pre preaching to them. Uh, I think that, that the conventions of the media often make people feel constrained. An example would be these recent debates where there was very little opportunity for follow-up questions. And in the newspapers and the blogs after the debates, the newspapers in particular said, well, here's you know, the distortions by one side, here's the distortions by the other. They still felt difficult within the constraints of nonpartisan journalism saying the distortions from this side are really much more serious than the distortions from the other side, and they're, they're more insistent and, and chronic. So I think there is a real, one of the problems for the media is that it's hard to find out the su substantive uh, basis of all these things. You know, it's hard to find out what the actual truth is. It's hard to feel confident saying, okay, this is right and, and this uh, leading figure is wrong, and the conventions of our business at this stage in history make it more difficult. Um, all right. Democracy used to be about for or against. How do we get back to that from what seem to be now right and wrong? Ah, that's an interesting question. And I, I guess it, one of the more worrisome trends of this election in particular is that each side feels so certain. You know, democracy often uh, has problems with certainty because you still have to live with the other people in the long run. You have to live with the results of elections you might, you might oppose. And I think there are, there are different kinds of certainties now. A value of this New York Times article I was mentioning was interpreting why the president and those around him feel so certain in the rightness with a capital R of, their, of the decisions they have made. Those who are critical of the president also feel certain about the wrongness of what he's done. And I would hope this is a place where we could turn to actual political leadership. When the president was running four years ago, you recall that he ran as a uniter, not a divider. And somebody who felt able in office to find ways to do that by the force of his personality or her personality, by the kinds of initiatives he pursues, that would be a step forward. Um, how would you explain the extremes in popular, uh, popular opinion about the wisdom of waging war against Iraq? It seems there's no middle ground. Either the war is a huge mistake, or it was necessary as a defense against terrorism. <clears throat> Excuse me. How come we're so polarized on this issue? That's also a hard question. There, there, is, there is increasingly a middle ground among people who are in favor of the war to begin with, but think its execution has been hideous, and therefore are against it on, on execution and practical grounds as opposed to on, on intention grounds. Um, my own position, just for the record, is I was against it because it seemed to me almost inevitable that the execution would be flawed, the execution would, would be messy, and that the circumstances we're having now were predictable and foreseeable results. I think that matters of war and peace by definition are visceral. They bring, you know, people's lives are at stake. There was a huge trauma, you know, unprecedented in our national history that led to this. There was, uh, and there were really unforeseeable sort of changes of the factual grounds for war. If the president's case about weapons of mass destruction had been bolstered after the invasion, I think there'd be a different tone of, of discussion. So all these things have combined for a truly polarized uh, field of And just debate. the larger question, I think, what is your sense, and we only have a few seconds left, but your larger sense of why the country as a whole feels so pol polarized about all the issues, the important issues in this election? 
Partly, we are in a time of national stress internationally and after the attacks of September 11th. Partly, we're in a time of very uneven economic effects, people losing their, their jobs and other people prospering. But I fear that political leaders and the strategists they rely on have, in recent history, found fruit in polarization rather than, 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 than in union. And so it has been profitable for candidates to win divisive campaigns, even though it makes it hard for them to govern. So we need to have a field of, of discourse in which candidates who take a different tone are rewarded. And so it, partly it's our responsibility too. And would the changes you've described in journalism, I'm sorry, also be feeding into that? Be, or uh, yes. be fueling people's sense of frustration? To the extent that journalism is becoming more partisan, more nicheized, more blogized, less concerned about trying to have some reasonable common ground on which we can all discuss things, knowing that one side or the other will win and we'll have to get along in the future, the changes in journalism are aggravating the trends we've been talking okay. about. Thank you so much, James Fallows, for exploring journalism and democracy with us. The Westminster Town Hall Forum takes place again on Thursday, November 8th, the next installment in this series on media ethics. The featured speaker will be the director of the Walker Art Center, Kathy Halbreich. Thank you, James Fallows. Thank you.